Welcome to another episode of Adding Context, a podcast of compelling conversations centered on advancing and enhancing the human experience. I am your host, Michael Bollins. Welcome back to another episode of Adding Context. Today I'm speaking to Jeffrey Calhoun. Jeffrey, uh, pleasure to meet you. Can you tell us what you do? Oh, thanks for having me on the show. I am a screenwriter, instructor, uh, best-selling author of The Guide for Every Screenwriter, and host of the Successful Screenwriter Podcast. How long have you been involved in that and doing screenwriting? Oh, going on uh, 15 years now. Nice. Where are you from yeah. originally? I live in Detroit, Michigan. Didn't have to move out to L.A. to, to maintain what you're doing? <laughs> No, I mean, you can if you're going to go be a, a WGA writer, um, try and get staffed on shows, things like that. But I'm, a, I'm an indie screenwriter, and, um, and it works out. Good. Glad to hear that. Well, what, uh, what spurred your interest with becoming a, a screenwriter? It was actually, it was a bet. So um, I knew a guy who was a local editor on a um, TV show, like a morning show, kids show. I think it was called Bed Bugs or something like that. And uh, he wanted to get into screenwriting. So he uh, kind of put a, out an open challenge and nobody took it. I felt kind of bad for the guy. So I said, you know what, I'll do it. So I uh, started learning screenwriting and, and wrote the thing and uh, fell in love with it. And my wife actually found the screenplay and she really liked it, which was a terrible shame because then I got launched into this, this path of passion of screenwriting, which I absolutely love. Not a bad thing to have your passion be your, your source of uh, employee. <laughs> right. So you, uh, you, you do a lot of different things um, behind the camera. What, um, as a filmmaker, what are some of the things that you enjoy most? I love coming onto a project that is totally crippled and lost and doesn't have direction. I'm actually working on one right now. I just got off of one um, where something is so broken, they can't figure out how to fix it. I love that challenge because it sets my mind on fire. So that's, that's what I like to do. So, you know, uh, I'm like the Statue of Liberty of screenwriting. Send me your broken, lost, terrible scripts, and I will uh, I will try and find freedom for you. <laughs> so the the counter to that question, what are some of the aspects of filmmaking that you, I guess, would say dread? Oh, what do I dread? I mean, it's hard getting work. You know, nothing is stable. You know, it's not a nine to five. You don't have insurance as an indie screenwriter. So, I mean, that's tricky. Some of us will have spouses with insurance or some of us will have a day job where you can get insurance and then, and then pay for, uh, pay for that. So, so things like that can be hard. And it's things that nobody ever really thinks about. They, they get this pie in the eye, uh, uh, that, Oh, I'll just be a writer and I'll get paid from writing and everything's going to be great. Well, it doesn't work that way, especially even if you're a WGA writer, um, you get insurance through the guild, but only for a couple of years while you're working, your credits have to be active. Yeah. So if you don't get staffed on a show after a year or two, you lose your insurance, you lose everything. It is pretty crazy. So I think things like, like finding gigs and really hustling and making sure all of that is good and that you have enough money when it comes to tax season. <laughs> so uh, yeah, I, I think that's probably the hardest part, being able to hustle. I, I, my experience and, and I've, I've kind of done a number of things behind the scene. I too am a, I guess you can call me a, an independent filmmaker. 
Um, I've produced a handful of things with a friend of mine. Uh, we've written a few things. I enjoy awesome. the, the the team building of it, the, the teamwork, you know, having some really creative people get together and, yeah. you know, kind of create something out of nothing. Um, yeah. You're founding a business essentially every time you make a movie. Almost from scratch, yeah. And and sometimes you can hit it out of the park and other times it's a swing and a miss. <laughs> yeah, of course. About screenwriting, it, what suggestions or advice would you get? Do you give some of your students uh, when they're starting out as screenwriters? Um, one thing I, I master the craft. So you'll get a lot of first time screenwriters will write something and it'll be interesting um, because they put passion into it. Passion is really important when it comes to your writing putting a part of yourself into a script. First time writers will do that. They'll do it unconsciously. Um, so you'll read something, oh, this is really interesting, but it's different. And it's not written in the standard way of a script. And I think you have to really be able to master what we do and then still be able to put a part of yourself into it. And that's where you get something magical. Are there any screenwriters um, that you admire yeah, absolutely. Um, Christopher McQuarrie uh, is one that I love. He did The Usual Suspects. He did he did several of the Mission Impossible films. What I love about him is he will um, think visually, and he will find he'll visit places and he'll look for potential set pieces and think about how could I allow this to influence my story, which is why when you see those Mission Impossible movies, they're so like, wow, how crazy is it? Because he found something that inspired him. Um, I love that. Uh, David S. Goyer, uh, he did some of the Batman films. Um, he went into directing as, as well. Um, I think he is incredible. He he's he started from the bottom up. I mean, he started doing like, like a few little action films and then just built this career. Um, he did a show called Da Vinci's Demons, which was brilliant. Uh, and again, he is he's one of those guys like if you read just like the pilot for Da Vinci's Demons, you're like, yeah, no wonder why this got picked up. It's got everything it needs. Uh, and and, and uh, I, I just think he's a brilliant writer. Another guy I like is. Um, Jonathan Nolan, who's Christopher Nolan's brother, he worked on a lot of the projects with his brother. And I think his fascination with bending structure is brilliant, the way he approaches it. Um, so I would say those are some of the writers that I really, I just appreciate what they bring to the craft. Um, what do you mean by bending structure? So he's done a lot of stuff with time. And he's taken structure that that we that we normally know, um, and and was able to like tell a movie completely backwards. Which how many times have you seen that before? I mean, it's absolutely incredible. And he even did it on uh, the television show Westworld, which he made with his wife. If you watch season one, you don't realize that there's two different time periods in season one until you get to the end of the show and you go, Oh my God, it's brilliant. So it was like, it. obviously that's something that he plays around with. That's something that he focuses on. And I pick that up in his work. As somebody who's a screenwriter, what are some of the qualities that you suggest somebody be able to possess in order to be a, a proficient screenwriter? I want, you know, I, I, I like that. Um, 
I believe that screenwriting is a craft. And so it's not a gift that you're born with. And I'm actually an outlier on this. There's a lot of instructors out there who believe you either have it or you don't. And I don't, I don't agree with that at all. I think it's a craft. I think it's no different than being a blacksmith. You can learn how to make a horseshoe. You can learn how to write a screenplay. What's different is how do you find a bit of passion about the project that you're, you're working with and how do you incorporate that into the script? But then how do you work in some kind of a truth some kind of a universal truth that you understand that you can express in your work that will reach out and touch someone else who's reading it. I think that's one of the, the hardest parts is finding that, that common chord and being able to convey it in words that is easily and hopefully well translated on a screen that's going to captivate people and, and, and draw them in. Listen, screenwriting is the hardest written art. It is. It's harder than anything because this is a visual medium expressed through the written word. So that it's exceptionally difficult to think of that one point of separation there to be able to get your mind around it. You have to be able to think in pictures, see the scenes, and then translate those scenes. But finding that universal truth I don't believe is as hard as everybody makes it out to be because the human experience, we all share similar, uh, similar journeys. I mean, my journey will be different from somebody else, but we've all experienced loss. We've all experienced shame. We've all experienced regret. We've all had people who've had power over us. Um, and so if you can find those core truths of the human experience, you express that, through your screenwriting, you're going to find an audience. Kind of stepping back for a second. You sure. mentioned structure. What is the, the typical story structure for developing a screenplay? Yeah, of course. So it, it goes way back to Joseph Campbell's Hero of a Thousand Faces, where he really kind of breaks down all of the mythologies and religions from across the world and shows their similarities. Now, Christopher Vogler came in with the writer's journey and he tweaked that for filmmaking, for writing movies, for writing uh, even stories. And so by taking that, that monomyth is what it's called. Um, you can use that for your screenplay, for your script. Now, the really cool thing about the monomyth is that everybody has taken, sorry, dude, like classes in session. <laughs> so, uh, so everybody, uh, screenwriting as instructors, myself included, have taken aspects of the monomyth and used it to influence their own structures. So you get somebody like Blake Snyder, who's got the 15-point beat sheet from Save the Cat. He took aspects of the monomyth and incorporated it into his, his methodology, just like... Um, uh, just like Christopher Vogler did. And I mean, I took aspects of it as well and I incorporated it and I have a nine point main plot outline that I use in the guide for every screenwriter, um, which was listed as one of the best screenwriting books of all time. So, I mean, it's, everybody has that influence. It's just how do you distill it so that other people can follow it? Right. What are some of the, the components that you drive for in those nine points? 
Yeah. So, I mean, the inciting incident is incredibly important, right? That's that point where a, a, a like a call to action. So uh, something happens in the central character's life and they are called to change. Now, here's the point that is really important when it comes to structure. The character says no. The character doesn't want to do it. And you have to have that denial of the call because people don't like to change. People don't want to change. So if you have a central character who says, no, I don't want to do that, it automatically endears them to the audience because the audience understands that on a core level as well. I don't want to leave my moisture farm. I'm used to it. I don't want to go hang out with this creepy old dude who lives in the desert. Now we got to go and start hopping a fly ship with a giant dog. You know, I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't sound appealing to me. So when we say no to that, um, through the audience gets it, and but then accept, eventually accept the call. They have to change, right? Um, and in so doing that, we understand as an audience, you're like, yeah, eventually you have to become a better person. I really like that. I also love two huge moments that I use. Um, the midpoint death. So there's a midpoint in any film you've ever seen where everything goes wrong and the character is at their absolute lowest. Now the midpoint death scene is really interesting because that happens to the character. They have no choice about it. They, they, they die and they are, are, are reborn anew in that scene, whether it's a physical, emotional, spiritual death. Now there's another death scene that in the character's journey towards the third act and that's called the resurrection. And the difference between the two is in the resurrection, the central character chooses to give up and sacrifice themselves for the greater good. And I love the difference there because in the middle, it's forced upon them, but towards the end, they choose to do it. And there's so much beauty in that. I, I hear a lot of people refer to, you know, typically things are three acts. You've got your buildup kind of where the story is basically hitting yeah, the middle of that. Yep. And then and the, the Sidfield 3X structure. The uh, the build down. What are, with character development, is it important to have every character fully fleshed out? Or is it one of those things where you really only flesh out the characters that have a lot to do with the story? I think it's important to have any characters that you're using to be, to fleshed out and have a purpose, right? So if you're writing from a character, if you don't know that character, you can't write properly from that character. The other point of having supporting characters in a story is that you have a central character who has depth, that we've spent time developing this character. If you have supporting characters, one of the purpose of the supporting characters is to reveal a different aspect of that central character. Okay, so it helps us understand more of who that person is and shows us more of their development. Now, if you don't have a developed central, uh, a developed supporting character that has a unique voice, how are we supposed to pull a different aspect out of that central character? Because they're just generic, and at that point, you at that point you're just filling space, and and that 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 can hurt a script. So yeah, supporting characters are essential to know who they are. Now, when you're in the writing process and you're actively writing it and say you've already developed these characters, what's going to happen is eventually 
you're going to get to know them even better and start saying, oh, maybe this character needs to be a little bit more like this instead. And you'll start leaning that way. And that's totally normal. You want to be open to those moments of where your characters start kind of developing themselves and telling you where to go, even though you've done all the work to get there. I would venture to say that maybe one in a million scripts that are written really hit home run Mm -hmm. right on the first draft. How many drafts do you typically go through? Before it's kind of fleshed Before I show it to anybody, 12. Wow. I go through 12 drafts before I show it to anybody. Then after I show it uh, to a producer who likes it, I'll usually go through another four or five for their notes. So, because what you got to understand is when your script gets to a producer, they consider draft one. You could put a hundred drafts into that script as soon as they read it. It's draft one. Right. So if, if they give you notes, you're like, well, I've already written it 12 times. They, they don't care. And honestly, neither should you. So, um, yeah, I, I go through 12 drafts before I make sure that this thing is ready. What are your, your thoughts on producers who are very note heavy or, or other, you know, directors for that matter that are very note heavy that maybe some of their, some of their notes might be contrary to what you were driving at. How do you, how do you navigate when you get, I guess, say notes that you don't agree with? I got to ask a question for a question now. Am I getting paid for the gig? Yes. Okay. So there we go. So notes are great. Give me all the notes you want. I'm getting paid for each draft I give you. So I know, I know some writers who don't even take up front pay. They take per draft pay. Oh, really? Yeah, so the so a producer gives him notes every draft. He's like, great, okay, yeah, I'll put that in. That's another <laughs> <laughs> however much he baked into his contract. As a writer, your job is to take notes. Right. Um, if you can't take notes as a writer, then you need to make this thing yourself. You need to be the director. You need to be the producer. But the honest to God truth is everybody will have notes. Like a, a friend of mine, Melissa Rundle, says she's a writer on the Kung Fu show. Um, she says everybody's got to put their stink on it. So um, that's, it's just going to happen. And that's the difference between a professional writer and, and somebody who's not there yet. So if a director comes to me or let's say we'll start with a producer, a producer comes to me with heavy notes. I say, okay, great. I look at all of those notes and I go, okay, does this make the story better? What are these notes? Cause you have to find the note behind the notes. Sometimes they give you a note on something that isn't working but they don't know why it's not working. So then you have to look at the notes and you have to almost, you almost have to be like, like decipher what they're trying to say and then look at your script and say, why isn't that working? And they go, Oh, okay. So a lot of that is taking the ego out. Directors of course will have notes because this is their vision going on the board. Right. And when you write a screenplay, your invitation, you're in your, it's an invitation for, for collaboration. God, I would hope a director would have notes for me. Um, so uh, I'll take those notes and go, okay, how do I make it better? So it's really it's really about that, understanding that once you turn this in, you sign a contract, you're getting paid, this isn't your baby anymore. Your job is to make this as great as it can, okay, and then take in those producer notes and make them happen. Um, sometimes you'll die on a hill, but you got to make sure it's worth dying on. Like I had a producer's note that at the end of the script, they wanted everything to be a dream. And I said, absolutely not. 
I, I can't do this. And, and, and they said, why? And I was like, because you are taking this entire beautiful journey we've created and made it pointless. Right. And, and he said, no, no, it needs to be this way. And, and, and I said, listen, um, you're going to have people sitting in the theater who have invested two hours of their life into this movie, not to mention how much money they spent on the ticket and popcorn. And then at the end of it, it's all a dream. And then they go, well, what the hell did I do this for? So you want to make sure that they stay invested in the story. And I don't normally die in a hill like that, but, but if I'm, if I'm really worried that this is going to kill the, the chance of success for the project, I will say something. That seems to be a kind of a a played out trope of when things get really, really crazy that, Oh, it's just a dream. Yeah. Yeah. It it doesn't work. What are your, um, what's your opinion in what's easier to work with a good script with a bad cast or a bad script with a good cast? Not saying that you wrote the script, just if you were brought in, if you were <laughs> brought in, you? <laughs> if you were brought in to kind of work on a project, would you rather have something that it was, uh, you want good talent, good talent. Yeah. You want good talent because, um, I can fix a bad script, man. I'm yeah. sorry. Like I just, I sit strong on that. If I have, if I have to rewrite it, I will. Like I've been brought on to gigs that had like seven to 10 writers on the script itself and the script made no sense. Like this was supposed to be scary. It was funny. Um, I had other ones that were supposed to be a thriller and they weren't, there was no mystery. Um, so I'll, I have, I have total confidence in my ability. So I will just be like, I'll take a great talent. And then I'll just take that script and I'll rewrite it into something that's worthy of their ability. What is your preferential cap for a number of writers at a table on a, on a given project? Cause I can understand having, you know, that many, you know, seven, eight different visions trying to collaborate to get together. Could get a, could get really muddy really quick. <laughs> they, they're not collaborating. So what's going on in that type of thing? Cause that is different writers that were given uh, different uh, different chances to rewrite the script. So the script started with one person, then it went to a team of two people, and then from there they sent it to another person, from there they sent it to another person. Um, well, I will tell you this. When I see credits of a script that's been produced and it has four or more writers on it, I get nervous because I start thinking, okay, there is so something terribly wrong with the script that they have to keep rewriting it to death. So that's when I get nervous when I see a lot of writers on a project. Um, that being said, they want to bring me in as number nine. I, I do have mouths to feed. <laughs> I would be happy to come in and give them my interpretation of, of the project. And I think I'd knock it out of the park. Um, so I would say that as far as writing with other writers, I, I'm very happy to collaborate with other writers. You just have to make sure when you're working with somebody that you sync, that you have an understanding of what you're both bringing to the project, that this is not a zero sum game. It's not me versus you. It's us making this project better. I, I like that mentality. The, the idea is multiple perspectives converging into one piece of art. Yeah. Especially in comedy. Comedy is essential to have a couple of writers. Like when I write comedy, I have a a writer. I love working with Joanne has brilliant. We'll sit down working on a comedy 
And I know lines are hitting when she is cracking up, right? And then she'll see, say something, she'll write something, and I will die. And so that's when you know it's working because it's hard to write a comedy solo because you could think you're the funniest guy in the world and everything falls flat. Right. So, but if you're working with somebody who's got a good laugh, then you know you're making it happen. What genre do you think is the hardest to write for? I mean, for me, I think period pieces are exceptionally difficult because you have to write within the language and verbiage of the time. I've seen a few period pieces where they obviously didn't do that kind of research and they all talk like they're from the 90s. <laughs> and it does, I don't think it works. It pulls me out of the story. So, yeah, I think period pieces are hard because you have to do a ton of research. I mean, none of the pop culture, pop culture references work because everything was different back then. And, and, the language is different. So, you know, colloquialisms don't match. So I think a lot of that, yeah, I would say period pieces to me are the most difficult. I think the, the idea that I've seen in some movies uh, and using, you know, 10 things I hate about you as a good example, they, they kind of modernized and obviously Shakespeare has been, his stories have been taken and, and re revisioned and repurposed, you know, throughout yeah. history of, of, of screenwriting. Um, I kind of like it when they take older stuff and freshen up, but I also like, uh, there's been a few times where I've seen it kind of done the other way where they've taken, you know, modern verbiage and modern things and reversed it where it played out, you know, a couple decades ago. Yeah. Where, uh, how, how do you as a screenwriter instructor and, and as somebody that's, does the things that you do. How do you analyze and dictate what is a good or what is a bad film? Uh, did I, did it make me feel Did was I emotionally invested in the characters and story? That's really it. I mean, you can have a perfectly executed script. I mean, I just read one. You can have a perfectly executed script format is perfect. Dialogue is good. Um, but there is nothing there. I have no investment whatsoever in these characters, in this character's journey. Um, so sure, you've technically written a screenplay, but there's no journey there. I'm not interested in what happens to this guy. Um, I don't even know what you're trying to tell me thematically with the story. It's just a series of events. That's a big problem. So yeah, is are you moving the audience? Are you eliciting an emotional response in your reading? Are they invested? I'll give you a story. I wrote a script and I sent it out for feedback. And I don't re I don't do this often, but I did it this time. And I got, I got some rough feedback. Um, and it wasn't on the technicality of the script or anything like this. It was be the guy giving me feedback got so pissed at the ending and was telling me about all of the things that would happen to my character after the story was over. He's complaining about, so she's going back to, she's going back to her ex-husband who's a loser. I never said that in the story. I elicited that that might be an option for her, but in the end it was her decision, but he was so involved in her arc he bought into it that he was so mad at the resolution of the character 
that he was talking about things that were happening to her, you know, after the credits had rolled essentially. <laughs> and so I could have taken that as, Oh man, this is really rough. I should change the ending. But no, I took it as in, I, this guy was invested in the story and cared about the character. Right. That's a win. When it comes to, to dealing with, and I'll use the kind of common topic that, or conversation that happens between comic book fans with the, difference between DC live action and Marvel live action. And I think it's the idea, the problem that I've always had with the DC stuff is they, they try and run cram too many storylines in. Whereas Marvel seems to be able to very delicately, delicately weave in the, the variety of storylines. Do you think that's because there's again, too many kind of chefs sticking their fingers in the pot or is that just a matter of, trying to have trying too hard to have something hit. I mean, I'll give you my opinion why I think Marvel works versus why DC struggles. Marvel works because every film focuses on a specific genre. So it works, you know, you have, um, uh, let's see, you have Thor Ragnarok, which was like a comedy with an old seventies feel to it. So it, it made it feel like really bright, really flashy, really beautiful. Well, you contrast that with the dark Knight right? Which is really kind of gritty and dark and serious. Okay. So those are two different. Fine. Okay. So, so we go from there. We look at Ant-Man and the Wasp. Well, what is that? That's a heist film. Yeah. Okay. So that works, right? So if we compare that with Justice League, well, what is Justice League? Well, it's a bunch of superheroes trying to stop a main villain, but it's not like a particular genre. So if you look at all of the different films that are coming out, in uh, I'm trying to think of like the latest one I watched, like 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 Black Widow was a uh, a spy action film, right? But Captain America: Winter Soldier was more of a thriller espionage film. So they're nailing all of these different genres, which make them unique. Whereas for a long time, DC was just trying to keep doing the dark, gritty Batman. And people were tired of it because they felt like they were watching the same movie over and over. That changed with Wonder Woman, and it changed with Aquaman. Now we started to get more personality and more uniqueness out of the DC films. But by that point, it's a little late to the game. So I think that's why it's working. And the difference of why Justice League doesn't resonate with audiences, even the newer one was Zack Snyder, which I thought was way better. Yeah. Um, uh, why that still struggles to nail it with audiences versus uh, the Infinity War saga was because we had plenty of character development and time to form relationships with all of those characters, yeah. right? So, so because of that, we really felt for Black Widow when she died because we had been around with her for like 10 years, but with justice league, we didn't get that development. Right. So they were throwing all of these characters together and just expecting us to care about them. Got it. I'm a bigger fan of the longer cut of the justice league, because I think that gave things more time to breathe. There was definitely more character development. I agree. It, It made more sense that way. Yeah. What are, some of the secrets that you would suggest for weaving subplots in how, how important are subplots to, uh, to scripts? Subplots are essential because they are tied to, um, thematically 
what you're talking about. Um, so like I'm a subplot guy, you know, I mean, in my book, I talk about the secrets of subplots because I found that's something that everybody skips over and never really talks about. And when I would fix scripts, they were always missing subplots. And so that would be like one of the first things I did was work in a subplot. Um, thematically, you have to know where you're going. What are you trying to save the script thematically? Then you have a character that is kind of like the living embodiment of that theme. The point of subplots is they come in and they show different alternates of that theme. So the opposite of what can happen to your character will be one of your subplots or something slightly different. So it shows where the central character could be going and what could happen if he doesn't go the right path. So subplots are essential to really building in and making a cohesive script. For people that are just starting out in script writing, they've, they've taken a few classes or online or whatever, do you recommend that they find a mentor to kind of help guide them until they get comfortable and, and find their, their structure and, and their voice, so to speak? Yeah, I do. I recommend you find a mentor that's a good one. Um, you want a mentor who really has your interest at heart, who wants to give back and isn't making it about them. I think that's important. So a good mentor is somebody who reads your script and says to you, okay, what are you trying to say with this? Because that's someone who is invested in helping you tell your story. Where if you have a mentor read a script and they say, well, I think it should be about this, that, and this. Well, now they're making it their story. And that's not a good mentor. So a mentor comes in and helps you tell what you're trying to say in your script in a unique way and kind of help you through the process. I mentor several um, writers and I'm even mentoring um, some as a as script consultants. So when I do a consultancy, I bring them in and I work them through a script that I fix and I show them how I've done it. And for me, it's always fun watching their eyes light up and they go, Oh my God, I would have never thought of that. How'd you think about that? Well, it all comes back to what are they trying to say? You've, you mentioned a, a few different, I guess we'll call it jobs that a scriptwriter could have. What, jobs to, to dive into it a little deeper what positions behind the camera can a screenwriter have because you mentioned consulting the actual screenwriter are there other yeah, you, you can you can be a um uh i've i've been i've come on pro productions as a script consultant where i've come on and they said this is a good way to get your script going in the right direction um you can you can be the screenwriter itself um, you can be on set and be the script coordinator. So when you're on set, I know some writers that do that and that's, it's actually, you know, its own thing. You learn how to do it. Um, you can take classes on it, uh, and can even get certified in it. So you're on set and you're making sure that everything is hitting, everybody's hitting the right lines correctly. Um, that the script is making sense that, that everything is coordinated within that to make sure they're not, they're not missing scenes. They're not missing lines. And so you're kind of like keeping the script continuity together. Um, so that's another way you can do it. I, since you kind of touched on it and popped in my head as the screenwriter, the writer of a project how much how flexible are you with allowing for ad-libbing and things and and the slight adjustments to the script 
So that that's up to the director. I mean, that's not up to me. The director on the set is shooting and there are some directors that will throw out every line you've ever written. And it's like heart wrenching. Um, and there's other, other directors that will, uh, say stick to the script. And then there's some directors that will hit a happy medium. And what they'll do is they'll have the, um, actor perform the line and then they'll do a few takes until they're happy. And then they'll let the actor say, okay, can I do one for me? And then the actor will do one for them. And it's some kind of riff that they've had playing in their mind to get it out of the system. So it really isn't entirely up to the director. I can say as a writer, I mean, I wrote the line for a reason. Right. Right. But my, my scripts are written with, I mean, I painfully go through every line to make sure I don't have anything throw away. Right. Like I don't throw in junk to fill a scene and get a page count. Every line I have has a reason. So can you riff on one of my scripts? Absolutely. But you have to understand that you might be sabotaging something that I've set up foreshadowed right. or anything like that, or a subplot I've built in. Um, that being said, uh, there is, there is something about, you know, that performer who gets into the mindset of the character um, they know that character they're living as them. They're in that character's body. So they, they could be influenced by something in that moment that that character would say that I could have missed. And I'm, and I definitely, uh, I definitely understand that. Got it. To, to shift gears a little bit, you also have a podcast. What, what do you cover um, in that? I, obviously it's about screenwriting, uh, but I'm sure you're not just, you know, give you me want, all your you secrets my away. Opening? Yeah, give me you your opening. opening. Yeah. <laughs> Welcome to the Successful Screenwriter Podcast, where we discuss anything and everything screenwriting. So, I mean, basically what I do is I talk to screenwriters, both indies and pros. I've got A-listers that come on the show, um, but I also talk to other filmmakers. I talk to directors. I talk to producers. I talk to people that are above the line and below the line in the industry um, to really find out the secrets and methods that people have used to get success. Cause the way I've done it is different from the way that somebody else has done it. Right. So I figure I've got, you know, all these listeners, let me get on as many different perspectives as I can so that somebody listening goes, you know what? I think I could do it that way. And then it inspires them um, to find their own success. Have you found uh, I guess a, a common thread for success or a common line of oh, success? Yeah. I, I give it my three T's. That's what I call it in the book. It takes time. You got to be tenacious. You got to not give up and you got to have talent. And with all three of those things, eventually your light will shine. Is there anyone you've, you've wanted to have on the podcast you haven't had a chance to get on yet? Uh, you know, the funny thing is, is I started out my podcast wanting to get a certain number of people, specific people. And I got all of them. <laughs> that was the crazy thing. I remember I was like, I want to get Sid field. I want to get the guy who wrote the screenwriter's Bible. Cause I mean, I, I got that book behind me. I've read it several times. The guy's a huge influence. Took a couple of times. He came on the show and I was like, Oh my God, I'm talking to, you know, I'm talking to Dave <laughs> Trotier. And then eventually I was like, I want to get Chris Vogler. I want to get the guy who wrote the writer's journey. He's the guy that really started making the monomyth popular. And it's like, I want to get him on this show. Um, and I got him on the show. Like I reached out to him several times 
and it was just crickets, man. I never heard from him. And then one day I got a, a call from his publicist who said, Chris wants to come on the show for the 25th anniversary of his book. And, I, and they said, can you make time for him? Like, are you serious right now? <laughs> <laughs> I'll make time. <laughs> yeah. I was like, oh, but I, let's do it. So yeah. So like I got him on the show um, right now who I'm reaching out for are just bigger names. I would love to get, you know, I would love to get uh, a, a David Gore, you know, uh, I'd love to get Christopher Nolan or, or McQuarrie on the show or David S. Goyer or any of the guys that I really grew up um, reading and loving. I'd love to get any of them. Um, the A-list guys are so hard to get because they're busy and you have to go through their managers. I have been been able to get a couple of them, uh, luckily, but uh, I keep trying bigger and bolder. I'm a huge fan of Aaron Sorkin's work. Um, oh, yeah, he's brilliant. Just from the newsroom, he has this this way of... of capturing reality i think yeah um and it's it, it i i just love like everything that he's done he's definitely somebody i would love to have a chance to talk to well the reason why he's so brilliant one of the reasons why he's so brilliant is because he's a playwright first so playwrights master the art of dialogue and conflict through dialogue right. and so he was able to bring that into television into filmmaking so if you watch any of his stuff you're always just raptured by this dialogue between two characters and it's because the guy was a playwright first and then brought that into filmmaking so he can he can fill that space so brilliantly i i agree i i, I think newsroom was far too short-lived i would love to see that go on for a couple more seasons yeah that was a good show so before i jump into the would you rather questions to finish up where can people find your podcast where can they find your book we're going to interact awesome. with you. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah. So the successful screenwriter.com, you can go on there. I have a membership you can sign up for and you can get free access to all kinds of stuff. I have Hollywood screenplays that you can read on there for free. I've got um, videos, instructional videos, um, uncut interviews that you can't get anywhere else. All of that is available right there on the membership page. Uh, my book is the guide for every screenwriter. It was listed as number one screenwriting book of all time by the book authority, which is pretty awesome. Um, that you can find it anywhere. Amazon, Barnes and Noble, Walmart, Walmart sells it online. It's kind of crazy. Um, and then if you want to reach out to me, uh, you can go on Twitter at screenwriter pod. I'll make sure to put all those links into the show notes so people can find you. I'm, I'm definitely going to pick up the, a copy of the book just for my own edification and my own uh, knowledge gathering. Awesome. Thank you. So for the fun questions, would you rather travel the world for a year, all expenses paid, or have $40,000 to do whatever you want with? Oh, no, travel the world. I already have traveled quite substantially. Um, and traveling really does get those creative juices flowing. It really, I mean, like if you're stuck at home and can't come up with anything, travel. And it doesn't even mean like fly the world or anything like go for a drive. Just get out and move, and you would be surprised where you find influence from. I'm, uh, I'm definitely in the same boat. There's, there's so much of this planet that I would love to see. Oh, yeah. A lot of stuff. You know, I'm a huge history buff, so the stuff, you know, the histories and the, the stories and legends of, of things in Europe and just, just the planet in itself. I was at the, I was at the Tower 
in um, London. And so it's like, I don't know, it's like a thousand year old castle thing over there in London. It's funny, you know, being from Detroit, like our oldest building's like 75 years old. (laughs) So I'm walking through there and I've just seen people like walking right past this thing like they're going to work. Like they don't even glance at them. Like, how do you nuts? This is amazing. And I was, so I was on that. I must've walked it like four times. And uh, I just thought it was amazing. Just taking in that type of history. So yeah, I get it. Yeah. I think people, when they're so immersed with history, they, they kind of just grow a little blind to it, I guess. It's just, becomes, yeah, it doesn't matter to them. Yeah. But in the meantime, I'm like, this Meanwhile, is amazing. We're <laughs> enthralled by the, the, the antiquity to it. Yeah. <clears throat> Uh, question two, would you rather have super sensitive taste buds or super sensitive hearing? I already have really good hearing. I actually got tested on my hearing and they said that I had a higher spectrum than most people. Um, I guess taste buds. I eat my food pretty bland. I'm like an old man. I <laughs> like warm, mushy food. That's bland. So there you go. I get yelled at by my wife all the time for not putting enough salt and stuff. Um, <laughs> I think I would want the 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 super sensitive hearing just for the fact that you could, could kind of eavesdrop on people from a, a greater distance. <laughs> I guess. Um, would you rather be the prom king or the valedictorian? Oh, valedictorian. I agree. Yeah. A little more, um, less of a popularity contest, I think. <laughs> yeah, I guess. And for the last question, would you rather have a terrible boss at a good job or a good boss at a terrible job? I mean, I've had both, dude. Who hasn't? <laughs> I, I mean, I stayed at the one with a good boss longer. So I guess there you go. Yeah. People are essentially important. So, yeah, I tolerated uh, worse work environment for pretty cool uh, people. Yeah. Um, I, I think everybody's had a situation where they've, when to get out, but they're kind of kept because of the people. Yeah. Those are like super easy questions. I thought you were going to hit me with some gotcha shit. Uh, I try not to do the gotcha stuff. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I probably could, but you no. know, catching yeah. people off guard, it's, and, and then it doesn't leave on a good note. So no, I've been there there too. So, <laughs> well, I thank you very much for the time you've given me and uh, I will definitely make sure to put the ways that people can find you. And I hope people do reach out and listen yeah. to your show. Michael, really intelligent questions. I want to say thank you for that. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for listening to another episode of Adding Context. You can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or visit us at addingcontext.com. You can also support our show via Patreon. Send us feedback and show ideas to podcast at addingcontext.com.